Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Saved at Sea by Mrs. O.F. Walton with permission of Forgotten Books. And we are on Chapter 5, The Unclaimed Sunbeam. My grandfather and Jim Mellor were sitting over the fire in the little watchroom in the lighthouse tower, and I sat beside them with the child on my knee. I had found an old picture book for her, and she was turning over the leaves and making her funny little remarks on the pictures. Well, Sandy, said Miller, what shall we do with her? Do with her, said my grandfather, stroking her little fair head. We'll keep her, won't we, little lassie? Yes, said the child, looking up and nodding her head, as if she understood all about it. We ought to look up some of her relatives, it seems to me, said Jim. She's sure to have some somewhere. And how are we to find out, asked my grandfather. Oh, the captain can soon make out for us what ship is missing, and we can send a line to the owners. They'll know who the passengers were. Well, said my grandfather, maybe you're right, Jim. We'll see what they say. But for my part, if they that cares for the child is at the bottom of that sea, I hope no one else will come and take her away from us. If I hadn't so many of them at home, began Miller. Oh, yes, my lad, I know that, said my grandfather, interrupting him. But thy house is full enough already. Let the wee lassie come to Alec and me. She'll be a nice little bit of company for us. And Mary will see to her clothes. And such like I know. Yes, she will, said her husband. I do declare she's been crying about that child the best part of the day. She has indeed. My grandfather followed Jim's advice and told Captain Sawyers when he came in the steamer the next morning the whole story of the shipwreck and asked him to find out the name and the address of the owners of the vessel. Oh, how I hoped that no one would come to claim my little darling. She became dearer to me every day, and I felt as if it would break my heart to part with her. Every night when Mrs. Miller had undressed her, she knelt beside me in her little white nightgown to talk to God, as she called praying. She had evidently learned a little prayer from her mother, for the first night she began of her own accord. Jesus, Epi, hear me. I could not think at first what that was she was saying, but Mrs. Miller said she had learned the hymn when she was a little girl, and she wrote out the first verse for me. And every night afterwards, I let the child repeat it after me. Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. I thought I should like her always to say the prayer her mother had taught her. I never prayed myself. My grandfather had never taught me. I wondered if my mother would have taught me if she had lived. I thought she would. I knew very little in those days of the Bible. My grandfather did not care for it, and I had never read it. He had a large Bible but it was always laid on top of the chest of drawers as a kind of ornament, and unless I took it down to look at the curious old pages inside, it was never opened. Sunday on the island was just the same as any other day. My grandfather worked in the garden or read the newspaper just the same as usual. I rambled about the rocks and did my lessons or worked in the house, as I did every other day in the week. We had no church or chapel to go to, and nothing happened to mark the day. I often think now of that dreadful morning when we went across the stormy sea to that sinking ship. If our boat had capsized then, if we had been lost, what would have become of our souls? It's a very solemn thought, and I can't be too thankful to God for sparing us both a little longer. My grandfather was a kind-hearted, good-tempered, honest old man, but I know now that it's not enough to open the door of heaven. Jesus is the only way there, and my grandfather knew little of and cared nothing for him. Little Tempe became my constant companion, 
indoors and outdoors. She was rather shy of the little Mellers, for they were noisy and rough in their play, but she clung to me and never wanted to leave me. Day by day she learned new words and came out with such odd little remarks of her own that she made us all laugh. Her great pleasure was to get hold of a book, pick out the different letters of the alphabet, which, although she could hardly talk, she knew quite perfectly. Dear little pet, I can see her now, sitting at my feet on a large flat rock by the seashore and calling me every minute to look at A or B or D or S. And so by her pretty ways she crept into all of our hearts, and we quite dreaded the answer coming to the letter my grandfather had written to the owners of the victory, which we found was the name of the lost ship. It was a very wet day, the Monday, that the answer came. I had been waiting some time on the pier and was wet through before the steamer arrived. Captain Sawyer handed me the letter before anything else, and I ran up with it to my grandfather at once. I could not wait until our provisions and supplies were brought on shore. Little Tempe was sitting on the stool at my grandfather's feet, winding a long piece of tape round and round her little finger. She ran to meet me as I came in, and I held up her face to be kissed. What if this letter should say she had to leave us and go back by the steamer? I drew a long breath as my grandfather opened it. It was a very civil letter from the owners of the ship, thanking us for all we had done to save the unhappy crew and, and passengers, but saying they knew nothing of the child or her belongings, as no one of the name of Villers had taken a cabin, and there was no sailor on board by that name. But they said they would make further inquiries in Calcutta, from which port the vessel had sailed. Meanwhile, they begged my grandfather to take charge of the child and assured him he would be handsomely rewarded for his trouble. That's right, I said when he had finished reading it. Then she hasn't to go yet. No, said my grandfather. Poor wee lassie. We can't spare her yet. I don't want any of their rewards, Alec, not I. That's reward enough for me, he said, as he lifted up the child to kiss his wrinkled forehead. Chapter 6 the old gentleman's question. The next morning, Tempe and I went down together to the pier to await the arrival of the steamer. She had brought a doll with her, which Mrs. Miller had given her, and of which she was very proud. Captain Sawyer sent for me as soon as the steamer came up to the pier and told me that two gentlemen come to see my grandfather. I held the child's hand very tightly in mine, for I had felt sure they had come for her. The gentlemen came up the steps a minute or two afterwards. One of them was a middle-aged man with a very clever face, I thought. He told me he had come to see Mr. Alexander Ferguson and asked me if I could direct him which way to go to the house. Yes, sir, I said. Mr. Ferguson's my grandfather. And so he went up towards the lighthouse. Tempe and I walked first to lead the way and the gentleman following. The other gentleman was quite old and had white hair and gold spectacles and a pleasant, kindly face. Tippy could not walk very fast, and she kept running first to one side and then to the other. To gather flowers or pick up stones, so I took her in my arms and carried her. Is that your little sister? asked the old gentleman. No, sir, I said. This is the little girl who was on board the Victory. Dear me, dear me, said both the men at once. Let me look at her, said the old man, arranging his spectacles. But Tippy was frightened and clung to me and began to cry. Never mind, never mind, said the old gentleman kindly. We'll make friends with one another by and by. By this time we had reached the house, and the middle-aged gentleman introduced himself, Mr. Septimus Foister, one of the owners of the lost vessel. He 
and he said that he and his father-in-law, Mr. Davis, had come to hear all the particulars that my grandfather would give them with regard to the shipwreck. My grandfather begged them to sit down and told me to prepare breakfast for them at once. They were very pleasant gentlemen, both of them, and were very kind to my grandfather. Mr. Forrester wanted to make him a handsome present for what he had done, but my grandfather would not take it. They talked much of little Tempe, and I kept stopping to listen as I was setting out the cups and saucers. They had heard nothing more of her relatives, and they said it was a very strange thing that no such name as the Villers was to be found on the list of passengers on board. They offered to take her away with them till some relation was found, but my grandfather begged to keep her. The gentleman, seeing how happy and well cared for the child was, gladly consented. After breakfast, Mr. Foster said he should like to see the lighthouse, and so my grandfather went up to the top of the tower with him and showed him with great pride all that was to be seen there. Old Mr. Davis was tired and stayed behind with little Timpy and me. This is a strong house, my lad, he said when the others had gone. Yes, sir, I said. It ought to be strong. The wind is fearsome here sometimes. What sort of foundation has it, said the old man, tapping the floor with his stick. Oh, it's all rock, sir, I answered. Solid rock. Our house and the lighthouse tower are all built into the rock. They would never stand if they weren't. Are you on the rock, my lad, said Mr. Davis, looking at me through his spectacles. I beg your pardon, sir, I said, for I thought I'd not heard him rightly. Are you on the rock, he repeated. On the rock, sir? Oh, yes, I said, thinking he could not have understood what I had said before. All these buildings are built into the rock, or the wind and sea would carry them away. But you, said the old man again, are you on the rock? I don't quite understand you, sir, I said. Never mind, he said, I'll ask your grandfather when he comes down. So I sat still, wondering what he could mean, and almost thinking he must have gone out of his mind. As soon as my grandfather returned, he put the same question to him, and my grandfather answered it as I had done, by assuring him how firmly and strongly the lighthouse and its surroundings were built into solid rock. And you yourself, said Mr. Davis, how long have you been on the rock? I, sir, said my grandfather. I suppose you mean how long have I lived here? Forty years, sir. Forty years come the twelfth of next month I've lived on this rock. How much longer do you expect to live here, said the old gentleman. Oh, I don't know, sir, said my grandfather. As long as I live, I suppose. Alec here will take my place by and by. He's a fine, strong boy, is Alec, sir. And where will you live when you leave the island, I asked Mr. Davis. I never mean to leave it, said my grandfather. Not till I die, sir. And then... Where will you live then? Oh, I don't know, sir, said the grandfather. In heaven, I suppose. But dear me, I'm not going there just yet, he said, as if he did not like the turn that the conversation was taking. Would you mind asking me one more question, said old Mr. Davis. Would you kindly tell me why you think you'll go to heaven? You won't mind my asking, will you? Oh, dear, no, said my grandfather. Not at all, sir. Well, sir, you see, I've never done anyone any harm, and God is very merciful, and so I've no doubt that it will be all right at last. Well, my dear friend, said the old gentleman, I thought you said you were on the rock. You're not on the rock at all. You're on sand. He was going to add more when one of Captain Sawyer's men ran up to say the steamer was ready to start, and would they kindly come at once, as it was late already. So the two gentlemen jumped up and prepared hastily to go down to the beach. But as old Mr. Davis took leave of my grandfather, he said earnestly, my friend, you are building on the sand. You are indeed. It won't stand the storm. No, it won't stand the storm. 
He had no time to say more. The sailor hastened him away. I followed them down to the pier and stood there watching the steamer prepare to start. It was a little delayed after the gentleman went on board, and I saw Mr. Davis sit down on a seat on deck and take out of his pocketbook and write something on one of the leaves. And then he tore the leaf out and gave it to one of the sailors to hand to me as I stood on the pier. In another moment, the steamer had started. Chapter 8. A Thick Fog That little piece of paper which was given me that day, I have it still, put by amongst my greatest treasure. There was not much written on it, only two lines of a hymn. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I walked slowly up to the house thinking. My grandfather was out with Jim Miller, so I did not show him the paper then. But I read the lines many times over as I was playing with little Tempe, and I wondered very much what they meant. In the evening, my grandfather and Jim Miller generally sat together over the fire in the little washroom upstairs, and I used to take little Tempe up there until it was time for her to go to bed. She liked climbing up the stone steps into the lighthouse tower, and she used to call out, up, 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 as she went along until she reached the top step, and then she would run into the watchroom with a merry laugh. As we went in this evening, my grandfather and Jim were talking together of the visit of the two gentlemen. I can't think what the old gentleman meant by the rock, my grandfather was saying. I couldn't make head or tail of it, Jim. Could you, my lad? Look there, grandfather, I said, as I handed him the little piece of paper and told him how I got it. Well, to be sure, said my grandfather. So I gave you this, did he? And he read aloud. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking stand. Well, now, Jim, what does he mean? He kept on saying to me, you're on sand, my friend, you're on sand, and it won't stand the storm. What do you make of it, Jim? Did you hear him, my lad? Yes, said Jim thoughtfully. And it set me to thinking, Sandy, I know what he meant well enough, but pray, what may that be? He meant that we can't get to heaven except we come to Christ. We can't get no other way. That's just what it means, Sandy. Do you mean to tell me, said my grandfather, that I shall get to heaven if I do my best? No, it won't do, Sandy. There's only one way to heaven, and I know that well enough. Dear me, Jim, said my grandfather, I never heard you talk like that before. No, said Jim, I forgot all about it since I came to the island. I had a good mother years ago, and I ought to have done better than I've done. He said no more, but he was very silent all the evening. Grandfather read his newspaper aloud and talked about all the manner of subjects, but Jim Miller's thoughts seemed far away. The next day was his day for going on shore, and my grandfather and Jim took it in turns. The last Friday in every month, It was the only time they were allowed to leave the island. When it was my grandfather's turn, I generally went with him and much enjoyed getting a little change. But whichever one of them went, it was a great day with us on the island, for they brought any little things that we might be needing for our houses or gardens and did any business that had to be done on shore. We all went down to the pier to see Jim Miller start, and as I was helping him to get on board some empty sacks and some other things he had to take with him, he said to me in an undertone, Alec, my lad, keep that bit of paper. It's all true that the old man said. I've been thinking of it ever since. And Alec, he whispered, I believe I am on the rock now. He said no more, but arranged his oars, and in a minute more he was off. But as he rode away, I heard him singing softly to himself. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. We watched the boat out of sight and then went home, wishing that it was evening and that Jim was back again with all the things we had asked him to get for us. That was a very gloomy afternoon. A thick fog came over the sea and gradually closed us in, so that we could hardly see a step before us on the beach. Little Tempe began to cough, so I took her indoors and amused her there with a picture book. It grew so dark that my grandfather lighted the lighthouse lamp soon after dinner. There was a dull yellow light over everything. I never remember a more gloomy afternoon. As evening came on, the fog grew denser, till at length we could see nothing outside the windows. It was no use looking out for Jim's return, for we could not see the sea, much less any boat upon it. So we stayed indoors, and my grandfather sat by the fire, smoking his pipe. I thought Jim would have come here before now, he said at length, as I was putting out the cups and saucers for tea. Oh, he'll come before we finish tea, I think, Grandfather, I answered. I wonder what sort of a spade he'll have got for us. When tea was over, the door opened suddenly, and we looked up, expecting to see Jim enter with our purchases. But it was not Jim. It was his wife. Sandy, she said, what time do you make it? My clock stopped. Twenty minutes past six, said my grandfather, looking at his watch. Past six, she repeated. Why, Jim's very late. Yes, said my grandfather. I'll go down to the pier and have a look out. But he came back soon, saying it was impossible to see anything. The fog was so thick he was almost afraid of walking over the pier. But he's bound to be in at seven, he said, for that was the hour the lighthousemen were required to be on the island again. So he'll soon be up now. The clock moved on, and still Jim Miller did not come. I saw Mrs. Miller running to her door every now and then with a baby in her arms to look down the garden path. But no one came. At last, the clock struck seven. I never knew him to do such a thing before, said my grandfather, as he rose to go down to the pier once again. Chapter 8. Waiting for the Boat Poor Mrs. Miller went out to her house and followed my grandfather down to the pier. I waited indoors with little Tippy, straining my ears to listen for the sound of their footsteps coming back again. But the clock struck half past seven and still no sound was to be heard. I could wait no longer. I wrapped the child in a shawl and carried it into the miller's house and left under the care of Mrs. Miller's little servant, and then I ran down through the thick, smothering fog to the pier. My grandfather was standing there with Mrs. Miller. When I came close to them, he was saying, Cheer up, Mary, my lass. He's all right. He's only waiting till this mist has cleared away a bit. You go home, and I'll tell you as soon as ever. I hear his both coming. You're wet through, woman. You'll get your death of a cold. Her thin calico dress was soaked with the damp in the air, and she was shivering and looked as white as a sheet. At first she would not be persuaded to leave the pier, but as time went on it grew darker and colder, and she consented to do as my grandfather told her, and he promised he would send me up to the lighthouse to tell her as soon as Jim arrived. When she was gone, my grandfather said, Alec, there's something wrong with Jim. Depend upon it. I didn't like to tell her so, poor soul. If only we had the boat, I would go out a better way and see. We walked up and down the pier and stopped every now and then to listen if we could hear the sound of oars in the distance, for we should not be able to see the boat till it was close upon us, so dense had the fog become. Dear me, my grandfather kept saying anxiously, I wish he would come. My thoughts went back to the bright sunny morning when Jim Miller had started, and we heard him singing as he went those... Those two lines of the hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. 
The time passed on. Would he never come? We grew more and more anxious. Mrs. Miller's servant girl came running down to say her mistress wanted to know if we heard anything yet. No, my grandfather said, nothing yet, my lass, but it can't be long now. Mrs. is so poorly, said the girl. I think she's got a cold and she shakes all over and she keeps fretting so. Poor soul. Well, perhaps it's better so. Whatever you do you mean, grandfather, I asked. Well, if something's amiss, she won't be taken back if she wasn't afraid. And if Jim's all right, well, she's only to be better pleased. The girl went back and still we waited on the pier. Grandfather, I said at length, I think I hear a boat. It was a very still night, and we stood and listened. At first, my grandfather said he heard nothing, but at length he distinguished, as I did, the regular splash, splash, splash of oars in the distance. Yes, it is a boat, said my grandfather. I was hastened to leave the pier and run up to the house to tell Mrs. Miller, but my grandfather laid his hand on my shoulder. Wait a bit, Alec, my dad, he said. Let us hear what it is first. Maybe it isn't Jim after all. But it's coming here, grandfather. I can hear it better now. Yes, he said, it's coming here. But he still kept his hand on my shoulder. The boat had been a long way off when we first heard it, for it was very many minutes before the sound of the oars seemed to become much more distant. But it came nearer and nearer and nearer. Yes, the boat was evidently making for the island. At last it came so near that my grandfather called out from the end of the pier. Hello, Jim. You're late, my lad. Hello, said a voice from the boat. But it wasn't Jim's voice. Whereabouts is your landing place, said the voice. It's so thick I can't see. Why, Jim isn't there, grandfather, I said, catching hold of his arm. No, said my grandfather. I knew something was wrong with the lad. He called out to the man in the boat in the distance in which he was to row, and then he and I went down to the steps together and waited for the boat to come up. There were four men in the boat. They were sailors and strangers to me. One of them, and one whose voice we had heard, got out to speak to my grandfather. Something's wrong, said my grandfather, before he could begin. Something's wrong with that poor lad. Yes, said the man. We've got him here, and he pointed to the boat. A cold shudder passed over me as he said this, and I caught sight of something lying at the men's feet at the bottom of the boat. What's wrong with him? Has he had an accident? Is he hurt? He's dead, said the man solemnly. Oh, dear, said my grandfather in a choking voice. However shall I tell his wife? However shall I tell poor Mary? How did it happen, I asked. How did it happen, I asked at length, as soon as I could speak. He was getting a sack of flour on the floor over yonder, said one of the men in the boat, and it was awful thick and foggy, and he missed his footing on the plank and fell in. That's how it happened. Yes, said another man, and it seems he couldn't swim, and there was no boat near at hand to help him. Joe Malcolmson was there and saw him fall in, but before he could call any of us, it was all over with him. We got him out at last, but he was quite gone. We fetched a doctor and took him into the house near and rubbed him and did all we could, but it wasn't no good at all. Shall we bring him in? Wait a bit, said my grandfather. We must tell the poor girl first. Which of you will go and tell her? The men looked at each other and did not speak. At last one of them, who knew my grandfather a little, said, You better tell her, Sandy. She knows you, and she'll bear it better than from strangers. We'll wait here till you come back, and then we can bring him in. Well, said my grandfather with a groan, I'll go then. Come with me, Alec, my lad, he said, turning to me. But no, perhaps i better go by myself. So I went very slowly towards the lighthouse, and I remained behind with the foreman on the shore, and that silent form 
laying at the bottom of the boat. I was much frightened and felt as if it was all a very terrible dream and as if I should wake up to find it all had passed away. Next time will be Chapter 9, A Change in the Lighthouse. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye-bye for now.